Welcome to 1001 Classic Short Stories and Tales. Today we bring you two stories, beginning with The Little Girl Who Dared by Henry Lanier and ending with The Donner Party Account by Virginia Reed. This story reminds us that home is where your loved ones are, even in a prairie schooner crossing the desert. And it reminds us that love of family is the engine of much courage in the world. The scene is one in a chain of incidents that led to the most famous disaster of the Overland Pioneer Crossings. Virginia Reed's act of love and bravery had enormous consequences for the Donner Party. Later in the winter of 1846-47, when snows trapped the group in the Sierra Mountains, Virginia's father led relief efforts to save his family and former comrades. Forty of the 87 emigrants survived the cold and hunger. Little Virginia among them. Both stories center on the actions and later memories of 12-year-old Virginia Reed, beginning with a story by Henry Lanier, after which we join Virginia Reed's actual account of the ordeal. And now, The Little Girl Who Dared by Henry Lanier. Three years before the gold discovery at Sutter's Mill drew thousands across the continent, a prairie caravan was laboring over the desolate Nevada sandhills west of the Humboldt River. It was composed of a party of more than 80 men, women, and children who had split off from a large caravan at Fort Bridger, lured by reports of a much shorter route. Among them was James T. Reed with his wife and daughter, and two families named Donner. Reed's oxen, crazed with thirst, had dashed off into the wastes of Salt Lake Desert and disappeared forever. Indians had just stolen more oxen at the Humboldt Sink. The traveling was exhausting. Men's nerves had become frazzled. Another of the endless succession of sand dunes appeared ahead. The cattle were so weary that it had become customary to put a double team to each wagon in pulling up these sandy hills and since this made twice the number of trips, it was very exasperating to the Teamsters. Wearily the drivers halted and prepared to unhitch and double up, but one man named Snyder swore he wouldn't bother with it. He started his oxen up the incline with shouts and loud crackings of his whip. The straining beasts labored up the slope, the heavy wagon wheels sinking deep in the soft, binding sand. It was too much even for their patient's strength. They stopped, exhausted and blown. The driver's utmost urgings and savage lashings couldn't force them a foot further. Wild with sullen rage, Snyder began to belabor the poor beasts unmercifully. Reed, who had gone on over the brow of the hill to pick out a road ahead, came back to witness the man's brutal abuse of the meek creatures who, with gasping breath and rolling eyes, tried to shrink away from the blows which he rained on their heads and shoulders with the butt end of his heavy whip handle. The useless cruelty was too much for Reed. He tried to quiet the driver, who was working himself into a frenzy, where it seemed probable he would kill one or more of the oxen outright. This interference snapped Snyder's already quivering nerves. Leaping to the wagon tongue, he turned his fury on Reed. Three times he brought his hickory handle savagely down on the other man's head till the blood streamed from the scalp wounds. Instinctively, Reed's wife rushed forward. Snyder was blind with rage by this time. The next blow fell upon her head. 
Seeing the maniac raise his bludgeon for still another blow, Reed drew his hunting knife and tackled him as if he were the wild beast he was imitating. The quick thrust entered Snyder's side, killing him almost instantly. The men of the party held an informal court. The dead body spoke more loudly to them than the provocation which had brought on the tragedy. With a cowardice that declared for the utmost penalty, yet strove to dodge the direct responsibility, the majority came to a singular and frightful decision. A committee announced to Reed that he was to go forth alone into the surrounding desert with nothing but the clothes he wore. This meant death by slow torture, without food, water, gun, ammunition, or bedding. A solitary man in that encompassing infinity of sand had nothing to expect but to perish through starvation and the unspeakable, lingering agonies of thirst. But it enabled his judges to preserve a faint pretense of his having wandered off of his own volition. Reed refused. Any man who had come across those hundreds of miles of desert would unhesitatingly have chosen to stand up before a firing squad in preference to this protracted suicide. But his overwhelmed wife, catching desperately at any straw, begged him so piteously to take this forlorn chance that he finally accepted the verdict. Mrs. Reed's pleadings made his executioners relent to the extent of permitting him to take a horse instead of going on foot. So he fared forth under the blazing sun to meet what seemed like an inexorable sentence. Wife and 12-year-old daughter watched him disappear into the pitiless desert. Then they went back to their own wagon where the sight of every article seemed to bring a fresh pang. The leaders of the party were human enough and they tried to show a rough sympathy for the suffering pair. But it was only too evident that any open professions were a painful mockery. They presently withdrew and the mother and daughter were left alone and isolated as if there were some contagious disease in their canvas-roofed home on wheels. Automatically, habit drove them to preparations for supper. Trying to support each other by encouraging hopes that deceived neither, they choked down the rough food. Presently, Virginia, who had disappeared for a short while before sundown, looked up at her mother's tear-stained face. Mama, said she resolutely, I'm going out to find father and take him something to eat, as well as his gun and pistols. What do you mean, child? exclaimed Mrs. Reed. You can't find your father. Yes, I can, insisted the girl. I'm not going alone. I've asked Milt, and he's going with me. Mrs. Reed protested. It seemed like merely adding a last horror to this nightmare day. But 12-year-old Virginia had made up her mind. She knew the vigilance committee had stationed guards to see that no attempt was made to interfere with the punishment. She was full of childish tremors at the thought of the night-enfolded desert and the wild beasts that howled through the darkness. But her daddy was out there with nothing to eat, and she was going to do something to help him no matter what happened. When the camp was quiet and all the children who might run in were asleep, she got together what their scanty stock offered, a piece of bacon, some crackers, coffee, and sugar. A tin cup, the gun and pistols, and some ammunition were collected. Next, a lantern and a supply of matches. Her mother lay helpless, 
watching these preparations with increasing doubt. How will you find him this dark night? She whispered. I'll look for the horse's tracks and follow them. The woman shook her head hopelessly. But just then, soft footsteps sounded outside. They listened, breathless. A gentle rap came against the wagon. That's Milt now, whispered Virginia. Carefully, she gathered up the weapons and handed them to a silent figure outside. In silence, she hugged her mother, who murmured a few words of prayer. Descending cautiously, she and the friendly Milton set out on their difficult mission. The flare of many fires lit up little circles in the encompassing blackness, amid which the canvas wagon covers loomed with ghostly dimness. Taking advantage of the shadows, they crept toward the outer edge of the circle. Ahead, the flickering light of the fire showed the guard tramping back and forth, the only moving sign of life in the whole encampment. To one side of him, the shadow of the wagon stretched out into the solid black wall of the solitudes that surrounded all of them. Lying flat, they wormed their way noiselessly forward to pass this danger point. A horse stamped restlessly behind. The sentry stopped short. Virginia and Milton froze to the ground like frightened partridge chicks. The man scanned the motionless camp. He turned for a long gaze outward into the void night. Then he resumed his monotonous beat. Hardly daring to draw a breath, the two again wriggled ahead, serpent-wise. The guard was left behind. They ventured to crawl on hands and knees. They were out into the open now, rising to their feet. They hastened on across the sand and were swallowed up in the sea of darkness. When they had reached a safe distance, Virginia touched her companion's arm. Let's light the lantern, she whispered. Standing between it and the camp, Milton lit the candle in the lantern. The girl took it and covering it with her skirt so that it shone only downward, began to walk to and fro, searching this tiny moving circle of illumination for the horse's footprints. It was hard to find. Back and forth and farther out, she looked in vain. The care necessary to prevent a flash of the lantern's light from reaching the guard and at the same time scrutinize every foot of the ground was confusing amid the obscurity. They'd slowly worked their way completely around the camp when a low exclamation of delight came from Virginia. There was a hoofprint in the loose sand. Kneeling down, she made sure. A little farther on, the marks were plain. Relieved and eager, they hastened now in that direction. It was a long journey, with no landmarks to show the progress and the inevitable loss of time when they occasionally lost the trail. Mile after mile they followed these mute guides, which seemed to lead on into an endless nowhere. The mournful howls of marauding coyotes made the child shudder every time they moaned across the plain. The shrill, savage screech of a mountain lion seemed even more threatening as it split the silence close beside them. She knew well that there were prowling wolves about, dangerous on their night roamings. Even Milton, who scorned these night prowlers like any stout frontier boy, stopped paralyzed with fear when a little later another sound came, which was made by no wild beast, but a far more dangerous animal. 
they judged it to mean the presence, not far off, of one of the Indian bands who had been lurking about their advance to pick off straggling humans or cattle. But even this most excruciating terror of childhood was not as compelling as the thought of her father, alone and hungry and unarmed, among all these dangers. They stopped for a few moments, dreading to hear the war whoop. All was silent. Virginia started on again. For what seemed like hours they labored on. At last the girl gave a cry, pointing ahead. There's Papa, she exclaimed. Milton scanned the blackness. It's a fire, sure enough. Neither gave vent to the thought which presently flashed upon them that the tiny point of light off there might be kindled by the Indians who loomed so large in their minds. Reassuring themselves by again studying the footprints that had led them so far, they hurried toward this beacon. A disconsolate figure sat hunched over in front of the blaze, head between his hands. As the two drew near, it suddenly sprang up, and Reed gazed wonderingly out from his circle of light, expecting some attack, and then a slender little figure, dropping the lantern to the ground, sped out of the encircling blackness and into her daddy's arms. Sorely against her will, Virginia started back for the camp with her companion at the first break of dawn, but she had the proud satisfaction of seeing her father, with the fresh courage and confidence she had brought him, ride off westward with better than a fighting chance of escape. The Donner party, which had cast him out, was destined, after a ghastly struggle, to leave half its members dead among the cruel snows of the winter Sierras. But plucky little Virginia was one of the half which finally reached the pleasant valleys of California. And now, the Donner Party account by Virginia Reed. We then learned that trouble was brewing in the camp where Snyder's body lay. At the funeral, my father stood sorrowfully by until the last clod was placed upon the grave. He and John Snyder had been good friends, and no one could have regretted the taking of that young life more than my father. The members of the Donner Party then held a council to decide upon the fate of my father, while we anxiously awaited the verdict. They refused to accept the plea of self-defense and decided that my father should be banished from the company and sent into the wilderness alone. It was a cruel sentence, and all this animosity towards my father was caused by Louis Kiesberg, a German who had joined our company away back on the plains. Kiesberg was married to a young and pretty German girl and used to abuse her and was in the habit of beating her till she was black and blue. This aroused all the manhood in my father, and he took Kiesberg to task, telling him it must be stopped or measures would be taken to that effect. Kiesberg did not dare to strike his wife again, but he hated my father and nursed his wrath until Papa was so unfortunate as to have to take the life of a fellow creature in self-defense. Then Kiesberg's hour for revenge had come. But how a man like Kiesberg, brutal and overbearing by nature, although highly educated, could have such influence over the company is more than I can tell. I have thought the subject over for hours, but failed to arrive at a conclusion. The feeling against my father at one time was so strong that lynching was proposed. He was no coward, and he bared his neck, saying, Come on, gentlemen, but no one moved. It was thought more humane, perhaps, 
to send him into the wilderness to die of slow starvation or be murdered by the Indians. But my father did not die. God took care of him and his family, and at Donner Lake we seemed especially favored by the Almighty, as not one of our family perished, and we were the only family no member of which was forced to eat of human flesh to keep body and soul together. When the sentence of banishment was communicated to my father, he refused to go, feeling that he was justified before God and man, as he had only acted in self-defense. Then came a sacrifice on the part of my mother, knowing only too well what her life would be without him, yet fearful that if he remained, he would meet with violence at the hands of his enemies. She implored him to go, but all to no avail, until she urged him to remember the destitution of the company saying that if he remained and escaped violence at their hands, he might nevertheless see his children starving and be helpless to aid them. While if he went on, he could return and meet them with food. It was a fearful struggle. At last he consented, but not before he had secured a promise from the company to care for his wife and little ones. My father was sent out into an unknown country without provisions or arms, Even his horse was at first denied him. When we learned of this decision, I followed him through the darkness, taking Elliot with me, and carried him his rifle, pistols, ammunition, and some food. I had determined to stay with him and begged him to let me stay, but he would listen to no argument, saying that it was impossible. Finally, unclasping my arms from around him, he placed me in charge of Elliot, who started back to camp with me, and Papa was left alone. I had cried until I had hardly strength to walk, but when we reached camp and I saw the distress of my mother with the little ones clinging around her and no arm to lean upon, it seemed suddenly to make an adult of me. I realized that I must be strong and help Mama bear her sorrows. We traveled on, but all life seemed to have left the party, and the hours dragged slowly along. Every day we would search for some sign of Papa, who would leave a letter by the wayside on the top of a bush or in a split stick, and when he succeeded in killing geese or birds would scatter the feathers about so that we might know he was not suffering for food. When possible, our fire would always be kindled on the spot where his had been, but a time came when we found no letter and no trace of him. Had he starved by the wayside or been murdered by the Indians? My mother's despair was pitiful. Patty and I thought we would be bereft of her also, but life and energy were again aroused by the danger that her children would starve. It was apparent that the whole company would soon be put on a short allowance of food, and the snow-capped mountains gave an ominous hint of the fate that really befell us in the Sierra. Our wagon was found to be too heavy and was abandoned with everything we could spare, and the remaining things were packed in part of another wagon. We had two horses left from the wreck, which could hardly drag themselves along, but they managed to carry my two little brothers. The rest of us had to walk, one going beside the horse to hold my youngest brother, who was only two and a half years of age. The Donners were not with us when my father was banished, but were several days in advance of our train. Walter Heron, one of our drivers, who was traveling with the Donners, left the wagons and join my father. On the 19th of October, while traveling along the Truckee, our hearts were gladdened by the return of Stanton, 
with seven mules loaded with provisions. Mr. McClutchin was ill and could not travel, but Captain Sutter had sent two of his Indian vaqueros, Luis and Salvador, with Stanton. Hungry as we were, Stanton brought us something better than food, news that my father was alive. Stanton had met him not far from Sutter's fort. He had been three days without food, and his horse was not able to carry him. Stanton had given him a horse and some provisions, and he had gone on. We now packed what little we had left on one mule and started with Stanton. My mother rode on a mule, carrying Tommy in her lap. Patty and Jim rode behind the two Indians, and I behind Mr. Stanton, and in this way we journeyed on through the rain, looking up with fear towards the mountains where snow was already falling, although it was only the last week in October. Winter had set in a month earlier than usual. All trails and roads were covered, and our only guide was the summit, which it seemed we would never reach. Despair drove many nearly frantic. Each family tried to cross the mountains, but found it impossible. When it was seen that the wagons could not be dragged through the snow, their goods and provisions were packed on oxen, and another start was made. Men and women walking in the snow up to their waist, carrying their children in their arms and trying to drive their cattle. The Indians said they could find no road, so a halt was called and Stanton went ahead with the guides and came back and reported that we could get across if we kept right on, but that it would be impossible if snow fell. He was in favor of a forced march until the other side of the summit should be reached. But some of our party were so tired and exhausted with the day's labor that they declared they could not take another step. So the few who knew the danger that the night might bring yielded to the many, and we camped within three miles of the summit. That night came the dreaded snow. Around the campfires, under the trees, great feathery flakes came whirling down. The air was so full of them that one could see objects only a few feet away. The Indians knew we were doomed, and one of them wrapped his blanket around him and stood all night under a tree. We children slept soundly on our cold bed of snow with a soft white mantle falling over us so thickly that every few moments my mother would have to shake the shawl, our only covering, to keep us from being buried alive. In the morning the snow lay deep on mountain and valley. With heavy hearts, we turned back to a cabin that had been built by the Murphy Schallenberger party two years before. We built more cabins and prepared as best we could for that winter. The camp, which proved the camp of death to many in our company, was made on the shore of a lake, since known as Donner Lake. The Donners were camped in Alder Creek Valley below the lake and were, if possible, in worse condition than ourselves. The snow came on so suddenly that they had no time to build cabins, but hastily put up brush sheds, covering them with pine boughs. Three double cabins were built at Donner Lake, which were known as the Breen Cabin, the Murphy Cabin, and the Reed Graves Cabin. The cattle were all killed, and the meat was placed in snow for preservation. My mother had no cattle to kill, but she made arrangements for some promising to give two for one in California. Stanton and the Indians made their home in my mother's cabin. Many attempts were made to cross the mountains, but all who tried were driven back 
by the pitiless storms. Finally, a party was organized, since known as the Forlorn Hope Party. They made snowshoes, and 15 started, 10 men and 5 women, but only 7 lived to reach California. 8 men perished. They were over a month on the way, and the horrors endured by that forlorn hope no pen can describe nor imagination conceive. The noble Stanton was one of the party and perished the sixth day out, thus sacrificing his life for strangers. I can find no words in which to express a fitting tribute to the memory of Stanton. The miseries endured during those four months at Donner Lake in our little dark cabins under the snow would fill pages and make the coldest heart ache. Christmas was near, but to the starving, its memory gave no comfort. It came and passed without observance, but my mother had determined weeks before that her children should have a treat on this one day. She had laid away a few dried apples, some beans, a bit of tripe, and a small piece of bacon. When this hoarded store was brought out, the delight of the little ones knew no bounds. The cooking was watched carefully, and when we sat down to our Christmas dinner, mother said, children, eat slowly, for this one day you can have all you wish. So bitter was the misery relieved by that one bright day that I've never since sat down to a Christmas dinner without my thoughts going back to Donner Lake. The storms would often last 10 days at a time, and we would have to cut chips from the logs inside which formed our cabins in order to start a fire. We would scarcely walk, and the men had hardly strength to procure wood. We would drag ourselves through the snow from one cabin to the other, and some morning snow would have to be shoveled out of the fireplace before a fire could be made. Poor little children were crying with hunger, and mothers were crying, because they had so little to give their children. We seldom thought of bread. We had been without it so long. Four months of such suffering would fill the bravest hearts with despair. During the closing days of December, 1846, gold was found in my mother's cabin at Donner Lake by John Denton. I remember the night well. The storm fiends were shrieking in their wild mirth. We were sitting about the fire in our little dark home busy with our thoughts. Denton, with his cane, kept knocking pieces off the large rocks used as fire irons on which to place the wood. Something bright attracted his attention, and picking up pieces of the rock, he examined them closely. Then turning to my mother, he said, Mrs. Reed, this is gold. My mother replied that she wished it were bread. Denton knocked more chips from the rocks, and he hunted in the ashes for the shining particles until he had gathered about a teaspoonful. This he tied in a small piece of buckskin and placed in his pocket, saying, If we ever get away from here, I am coming back for more. Denton started out with the first relief party, but perished on the way, and no one thought of the gold in his pocket. Denton was about 30 years of age. He was born in Sheffield, England, and was a gunsmith and gold beater by trade. Gold has never been found on the shore of the lake, but a few miles from there, in the mountain canyons, from which this rock probably came, rich mines have been discovered. Time dragged slowly along till we were no longer on short allowance 
but were simply starving. My mother determined to make an effort to cross the mountains. She could not see her children die without trying to get them food. It was hard to leave them, but she felt that it must be done. She told them she would bring them bread, so they were willing to stay. And with no guide but a compass, we started. My mother, Eliza, Milt Elliott, and myself. Milt wore snowshoes, and we followed in his tracks. We were five days in the mountains. Eliza gave out the first day and had to return, but we kept on and climbed one high mountain after another, only to see others higher still ahead. Often I would have to crawl up the mountains, being too tired to walk. The nights were made hideous by the screams of wild beasts heard in the distance. Again, we would be lulled to sleep by the moan of the pine trees, which seemed to sympathize with our loneliness. One morning we awoke to find ourselves in a well of snow. During the night, while in the deep sleep of exhaustion, the heat of the fire had melted the snow, and our little camp had gradually sunk many feet below the surface until we were literally buried in a well of snow. The danger was that any attempt to get out might bring an avalanche upon us. But finally steps were carefully made, and we reached the surface. My foot was badly frozen, so we were compelled to return. And just in time, for that night a storm came on, the most fearful of the winter, and we should have perished had we not been in the cabins. We now had nothing to eat but raw hides, and they were on the roof of the cabin to keep out the snow. When prepared for cooking and boiled, they were simply a pot of glue. When the hides were taken off our cabin and we were left without shelter, Mr. Breen gave us a home with his family, and Mrs. Breen prolonged my life by slipping me little bits of meat now and then when she discovered that I could not eat the hide. Death had already claimed many in our party, and it seemed as though relief would never reach us. Bayless Williams, who had been in delicate health before we left Springfield, was the first to die. He passed away before starvation had really set in. I am a Catholic, although my parents were not. I often went to the Catholic Church before leaving home, but it was at Donner Lake that I made the vow to be a Catholic. The Breens were the only Catholic family in the Donner party, and prayers were said aloud regularly in that cabin, night and morning. Our only light was from little pine sticks split up like kindling wood and kept consistently on the hearth. I was very fond of kneeling by the side of Mr. Breen and holding those little torches so that he might see to read. One night we had all gone to bed. I was with my mother and the little ones, all huddled together to keep from freezing, but I could not sleep. It was a fearful night, and I felt that the hour was not far distant when we would go to sleep, never to wake again in this world. All at once I found myself on my knees with my hands clasped, looking up through the darkness, making a vow that if God would send us relief and let me see my father again, I would be a Catholic. That prayer was answered. On his arrival at Sutter's Fort, my father made known the situation of the emigrants, and Captain Sutter offered at once to do everything possible for their relief. He furnished horses and provisions, and my father and Mr. McClutchin started for the mountains, coming as far as possible with horses 
and then with packs on their backs, proceeding on foot. But they were finally compelled to return. The snow was just too high. Captain Sutter was not surprised at their defeat. He stated that there were no able-bodied men in that vicinity, all having gone down country with Fremont to fight the Mexicans. He advised my father to go to Yerba Buena, now San Francisco, and make his case known to the naval officer in command. My father was in fact conducting parties there when the seven members of the Forlorn Hope arrived from across the mountains. Their famished faces told the story. Cattle were killed and men were up all night drying beef and making flour by hand mills, nearly 200 pounds being made in one night and a party of seven, commanded by Captain Reeson B. Tucker, were sent to our relief by Captain Sutter and the Alcalde, Mr. Sinclair. On the evening of February 19, 1847, they reached our cabins, where all were starving. They shouted to attract attention. Mr. Breen clambered up the icy steps from our cabin, and soon we heard the blessed words, Relief! Thank God! Relief! There was joy at Donner Lake that night, for we did not know the fate of the forlorn hope, and we were told that relief parties would come and go until all were across the mountains. But with joy, sorrow was strangely blended. There were tears in other eyes than those of children. Strong men sat down and wept, for the dead were lying about on the snow, some even unburied since the living had not had enough strength to bury their dead. When Milt Elliot died, our faithful friend, who seemed so like a brother, my mother and I dragged him up out of the cabin and covered him with snow. Commencing at his feet, I patted the pure white snow down softly until I reached his face. Poor Milt! It was hard to cover that face from sight forever, for with his death, our best friend was gone. On the 22nd of February, the first relief started with a party of 23 men, women, and children. My mother and her family were among that number. It was a bright sunny morning, and we felt happy, but we had not gone far when Patty and Tommy gave out. They were not able to stand the fatigue, and it was not thought safe to allow them to proceed. So Mr. Glover informed Mama that they would have to be sent back to the cabins to await the next expedition. What language can express our feelings? My mother said that she would go back with her children and that we would all go back together. This the relief party would not permit, and Mr. Glover promised Mama that as soon as they reached Bear Valley, he himself would return for her children. Finally, my mother, turning to Mr. Glover, said, Are you a Mason? He replied that he was. Will you promise me on the word of a mason that if we do not meet their father, you will return and save my children? He pledged himself that he would. My father was a member of the mystic tie and mama had great faith in the word of a mason. It was a sad parting, a fearful struggle. The men turned aside, not being able to hide their tears. Patty said, I want to see Papa, but I'll take good care of Tommy and I do not want you to come back. Mr. Glover returned with the children and providing them with food, left them in the care of Mr. Breen. With sorrowful hearts, we traveled on, 
walking through the snow in single file. The men wearing snowshoes broke the way, and we followed in their tracks. At night we lay down on the snow to sleep, to awake to find our clothing all frozen, even to our shoestrings. At break of day, we were again on the road, owing to the fact that we could make better time over the frozen snow. The sunshine, which it would seem would have been welcome, only added to our misery. The dazzling reflection of the snow was very trying to the eyes, while its heat melted our frozen clothing, making them cling to our bodies. My brother was too small to step in the tracks made by the men. In order to travel, he had to place his knee on the little hill of snow after each step and climb over. Mother coaxed him along, telling him that at every step he took, he was getting nearer Papa and nearer something to eat. He was the youngest child that walked over the Sierra Nevada. On our second day's journey, John Denton gave out and declared it would be impossible for him to travel, but he begged his companions to continue their journey. A fire was built, and he was left lying on the bed of freshly cut pine boughs, peacefully smoking. He looked so comfortable that my little brother wanted to stay with him, but when the second relief party reached him, poor Denton was past waking. His last thoughts seemed to have gone back to his childhood's home. As a little poem was found by his side, the pencil apparently just dropped from his hand. Captain Tucker's party, on their way to the cabins, had lightened their packs of a sufficient quantity of provisions to supply the sufferers on their way out. But when we reached the place where the catch had been made by hanging the food on a tree, we were horrified to find that wild animals had reached it and destroyed it. And again, starvation stared us in the face. But my father was hurrying over the mountains and met us in our hour of need with his hands full of bread. He had expected to meet us on this day and had stayed up all night baking bread to give us. He brought with him 14 men. Some of his party were ahead and when they saw us coming, they called out, Is Mrs. Reed with you? If she is, tell her Mr. Reed is here. We heard the call. Mother knelt on the snow while I tried to run to meet Papa. When my father learned that two of his children were still at the cabins, he hurried on. So fearful was he that they might perish before he reached them. He seemed to fly over the snow and made in two days the distance we had made in five in traveling and was overjoyed to find Patty and Tommy alive. He reached Donner Lake on the 1st of March and what a sight met his gaze. The famished little children and the death-like look of all made his heart ache. He filled Patty's apron with biscuits, which she carried around, giving one to each person. He had soup made for the infirm and rendered every assistance possible to the sufferers. Leaving them with about seven days provisions, he started out with a party of 17, all that were able to travel. Three of his men were left at the cabins to procure wood and assist the helpless. My father's party, the second relief, had not traveled many miles when a storm broke upon them. With the snow came a perfect hurricane. The crying of half-frozen children, the lamenting of the mothers, and the suffering of the whole party was heart-rending, and above all could be heard the shrieking of the storm king. One who has never witnessed a blizzard in the Sierra can form no idea of the situation. All night my father and his men 
worked unceasingly through the raging storm, trying to erect shelter for the dying women and children. At times the hurricane would burst forth with such violence that he felt alarmed on account of the tall timber surrounding the camp. The party was destitute of food, all supplies that could be spared having been left with those at the cabins. The relief party had catched provisions on their way over to the cabins, and my father had sent three of the men forward for food before the storm set in. But they could not return. Thus again, death stared all in the face. At one time, the fire was nearly gone. Had it been lost, all would have perished. Three days and nights they were exposed to the fury of the elements. Finally, my father became snowblind and could do no more, and he would have died but for the exertions of William McClutchen and Hiram Miller, who worked over him all night. From this time forward, the toil and responsibility rested upon McClutchen and Miller. The storm at last ceased, and these two determined to set out over the snow and send back relief to those who now were not able to travel. Hiram Miller picked up Tommy and started. Patty thought she could walk, but gradually everything faded from her sight, and she too seemed to be dying. All other sufferings were now forgotten, and everything was done to revive the child. My father found some crumbs in the thumb of his woolen mitten. Warming and moistening them between his own lips, he gave them to her, and thus saved her life, and afterwards she was carried along by the different ones in the company. Patty was not alone in her travels. Hidden away in her bosom was a tiny doll, which she had carried day and night through all of our trials. Sitting before a nice, bright fire at Woodward's camp, she took Dolly out to have a talk and told her of all her new happiness. There was untold suffering at that starved camp, as the place has since been called. When my father reached Woodworth's camp, a third relief started in at once and rescued the living. A fourth relief went on to Donner Lake, as many were still there, and many remain there still, including George Donner and wife, Jacob Donner and wife, and four of their children. George Donner had met with an accident which rendered him unable to travel, and his wife would not leave him to die alone. It would take pages to tell of the heroic acts and noble deeds of those who lie sleeping about Donner Lake. Most of the survivors, when brought in from the mountains, were taken by the different relief parties to Sutter's Fort, and the generous-hearted captain did everything possible for the sufferers. Out of the 83 persons who were snowed in at Donner Lake, 42 perished. And of the 31 emigrants who left Springfield, Illinois that spring morning, only 18 lived to reach California. Alcade Sinclair took my mother and her family to his own home, and we were surrounded with every comfort. Mrs. Sinclair was the dearest of women. Never can I forget their kindness. But our anxiety was not over for we knew that my father's party had been caught in the storm. I can see my mother now as she stood leaning against the door for hours at a time, looking towards the mountains. At last, my father arrived at Mr. Sinclair's with the little ones, and our family was again united. That day's happiness repaid us for much that we had suffered, and it was spring in California. Words cannot tell 
how beautiful the spring appeared to us coming out of the mountains from that long winter at Donner Lake in our little dark cabins under the snow. Before us now lay, in all its beauty, the broad valley of the Sacramento. I remember one day when traveling down Napa Valley, we stopped at noon to have lunch under the shade of an oak, but I was not hungry. I was too full of the beautiful around me to think of eating. So I wandered off by myself to a lovely little knoll and stood there in a bed of wildflowers looking up and down the green valley, all dotted with trees. The birds were singing with very joy in the branches over my head, and the blessed sun was smiling down upon all as though in benediction. I drank it in for a moment and then began kissing my hand and wafting kisses to heaven in thanksgiving to the Almighty for creating a world so beautiful. I felt so near God at that moment that it seemed to me I could feel his breath warm upon my cheek. By and by I heard Papa calling, Daughter, where are you? Come, child, we're ready to start, and you've had no lunch. I ran and caught him by the hand, saying, Buy this place, please, and let us make our home here. He stood looking around for a moment and said, It is a lovely spot. And then we passed on. What an incredible true story by Virginia Reed. Thank you very much for joining us at 1001 Classic Short Stories and Tales. We'd like to take a moment to thank our fans for their reviews at Apple Podcasts and ask that if you haven't written one yet, we would greatly appreciate it. This one reads, Excellente by Kyle Kindle. Rating five stars. I love this show. Makes the workday go fast. My two kids, six and 12, also love to listen in the car. We've had a few driveway moments sitting parked, waiting for the story to finish. Keep it up. And this one by Svendinavia. Great short stories. Mr. Hagedorn does an excellent job. And this one by WM084. Not overdone, just good stories. Well read. Good reader. Well dictated. Great choice of stories. Has introduced me to many new favorite short story authors. One of my favorite story podcasts also gives a bit of insight into author, but without opinions or carrying on and on. I love it. And this one, I love it, by T3000. Rating five stars. I love this podcast. And by Ray Lynn. Fantastic. This podcast saves my sanity during my long commute. It's engaging and enjoyable and even takes my mind off heavy traffic. The story selection is really great, too. It's a good mix of familiar favorites and many I haven't heard before. Thanks for broadening my literary horizons and for making my commute enjoyable. Thank you all so very, very much. We've done just about 80 short stories at this point. Ever wonder which ones are the most popular? We get all the analytics here, which is a fun part of what I do. And I'll read the top 20 for you in order. And maybe you can send us a review as thanks. Number one in popularity, A Piece of Steak by Jack London. Number two, The Wendigo by Algernon Blackwood. Number three, Beauty and the Beast by Gabriel Suzanne Barbeau de Villanueva. Number four, The Wendigo Part Two by Algernon Blackwood. Number five, The Stranger by Ambrose Bierce. Number six, Amateur Night by Jack London. 
Number seven, Hearts and Hands by O. Henry. Number eight, The Gift of the Magi by O. Henry. Number nine, The Riddle of the Sphinx. Number 10, The Devil and Tom Walker by Washington Irving. Number 11, The Shipwreck by Charles Dickens. 12, The Sundog Trail by Jack London. 13, My Red Cap by Louisa May Alcott. Number 14, The Lady with the Lamp. <laughs> Number 13, I think we're at. The Vendetta by Maupassant. Number 14, The Wolves of Chernogratz by Saki. Number 15, That Dead Men Rise Up Never by Jack London. Number 16, The Murders in the Rue Morgue by Edgar Allan Poe. Number 17, Aloha Oi by Jack London. 18, The Toys of Peace by Saki. 19, The Legend of King Arthur. 20, The Dog by Banjo Patterson. 21, The Wreck of the Royal Charter by Charles Dickens. And 22, My Wife by Guy de Maupassant. And one that's not in the top 22, The Wreck by Maupassant, which is my favorite. Our home website is www.1001storiespodcast.com. And however you receive your podcast, whether it's through Apple or podbay.fm or stitcher.com or any one of dozens of good podcast catchers, you can catch our archives there. Thank you very much for joining us. This is your host and storyteller, John Hagedorn, and this is our story.